following is the conclusion of the mortification of sin as it is covered in Pneumatology, Volume 3, John Owen's work on the Holy Spirit and sanctification. In the last recording, he was talking about how the Holy Ghost assists us in our mortification. We covered the first one by implanting in our minds and all their faculties a contrary habit and principle with contrary inclinations, dispositions, and actings, namely a principle of spiritual life and holiness bringing forth the fruits of it. And today we start with, secondly, the Holy Ghost carries on this work in us as a grace and enables us to it as our duty. Those actual supplies and assistances of grace which he continually communicates to us for the same divine operations the same supplies of grace which are necessary to the positive acts and duties of holiness are necessary also to this end, that sin in the actual motions and lustings of it may be mortified. So the apostle issues his long account of the conflict between sin and the soul of a believer and his complaint thereon with that good word, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, verse 25 namely, who supplies me with gracious assistance against the power of sin. Temptation is successful only by sin, James 1 verse 14. And it was with respect to a special temptation that the Lord Christ gives that answer to the apostle, my grace is sufficient for, my grace is sufficient for you, Second Corinthians 12, 9. It is the actual supply of the Spirit of Christ that enables us to withstand our temptations and subdue our corruptions. This is the additional supply his occasion requires beyond our constant daily provision. Hebrews 4 verse 16, grace given in to help seasonably upon our cry made for it. Of the nature of these supplies we have discoursed before. I shall now only observe that in the life of faith and dependence on Christ, the expectation and derivation of these supplies of grace and spiritual strength is one principal part of our duty. These things are not empty notions as some imagine. If Christ be a head of influence to us, as well as a rule, as a head natural is to the body, if he is our life, if our life is in him, and we have nothing but what we do receive from him, if he give to us supplies of his spirit and increases of grace, and if it be our duty by faith to look for all these things from him, and that be the means of receiving them, which things are all expressly and frequently affirmed in the scripture, then is this expectation and derivation of spiritual strength continually from him the way we are to take for the actual mortification of sin. And therefore, if we would be found in a successful discharge of this duty, it is required of us first did we endeavor diligently in the whole course of our lives after these continual supplies of grace, that is, that we wait for them in all those ways and means in which they are communicated. For although the Lord Christ gives them out freely and bountifully, yet our diligence and duty will give the measure of receiving them. If we are negligent in prayer, meditation, reading, hearing of the word and other ordinances of divine worship, we have no ground to expect any great supplies to this end. And secondly, 
that we live and abound in the actual exercise of all those graces which are most directly opposite to those peculiar lusts or corruptions that we are most exercised with or liable to. For sin and grace try their interest and prevalency in particular instances. If therefore any are more than ordinarily subject to the power of any corruption, as passion, inordinate affections, love of the world, distrust of God, unless they are constant in the exercise of those graces which are diametrically opposed to them, they will continue to suffer under the power of sin. Thirdly, it is the Holy Spirit which directs us to and helps us in the performance of those duties which are appointed of God to this end, that they may be means of the mortification of sin, to the right use of those duties, for such there are, two things are required first, that we know them aright, and their nature and use is also that they are appointed of God to this end, and then secondly, that we perform them in a due manner, and both these will must have from the Spirit of God. He is given to believers to lead them into all truth. He teaches and instructs them by the word not only what duties are incumbent on them, but also how to perform them and with respect to what ends. First, it is required that we know them aright in their nature, use, and ends. For lack of this, or through the neglect of looking after it, all sorts of men have wandered after foolish imaginations about this work, either as to the nature of the work itself or as to the means in which it may be effected. For it being a grace and duty of the gospel, Thence only is it truly to be learned, and that by the teaching of the Spirit of God, and it may not be amiss to give some instances of the darkness of men's minds and their mistakes in this. The first thing is a general apprehension that somewhat of this nature is necessary, arising from the observation of the disorder of our passions and the exorbitancy of the lives of most in the world is suited even to the light of nature and was from this variously improved by the philosophers of old. To this purpose did they give many instructions about denying and subduing the disorderly affections of the mind, conquering passions, moderating desires, and the like. But while their discoveries of sin rose no higher than the actual disorder they found in the affections and passions of the mind, while they knew nothing of the deprivation of the mind itself, and had nothing to oppose to what they discovered, but moral considerations, and those most of them notoriously influenced by vainglory and applause, they never attained to anything of the same kind with the due mortification of sin. Secondly, we may look into the Catholic Church, and take a view of the great appearance of this duty which is in it, and we shall find it all disappointed, because they are not led to nor taught the duties in which it may be brought about by the Spirit of God to have, by the light of the Scripture, a far clearer discovery of the nature and power of sin than had the philosophers of old, the commandment also being variously brought and applied to their consciences, they may be, and doubtless are, and have been, many of them made deeply sensible of the actings and tendency of indwelling sin. Hereon ensues a terror of death and eternal judgment. Things being so stated, 
persons who were not profligate, nor had their consciences seared, could not refrain from contriving ways and means how sin might be mortified and destroyed. But, because they had lost a true apprehension of the only way in which this might be effected, they took themselves to innumerable false ones of their own. This was the spring of all the austerities, disciplines, fasting, self-macerations, and the like, which are exercised or in use among them. For although they are now in practice turned mostly to the benefit of the priests, and an indulgence to sin and the penitents, yet they were invented, and set on foot at first, with a design to use them as engines for the mortification of sin, and they have a great appearance in the flesh to that end and purpose. But yet, when all was done, they found by experience that they were insufficient to this end. Sin was not destroyed nor conscience pacified by them. This made them betake themselves to purgatory. Here they have hopes all will be set right when they are gone out of this world. From this none could come back to complain of their disappointments. These things are not spoken to condemn even external severities, austerities, and fasting watchings and abstinences in their proper place. Our nature is apt to run into extremes because we see the vanity of the Catholic Church in placing mortification of sin in an outward show and appearance of it, in that bodily exercise which does not profit, we are apt to think that all things of that nature are utterly needless and cannot be subordinate to spiritual ends. But, the truth is, I shall much suspect their internal mortification pretend what they will who always pamper the flesh, indulge their sensual appetite, conform to the world, and lead their lives in idleness and pleasures. Yea, it is high time that professors, by joint consent, should retrench that course of life and fullness of diet, bravery of apparel, expense of time and vain conversation which many in our day are fallen into. But these outward austerities of themselves, I say, will never effect the end aimed at. For as to the most of them, they being such as God never appointed to any such end or purpose, but being the fruit of men's own contrivances and inventions, let them be insisted on and pursued to the most imaginable extremities because they are not blessed of God, to this end they will not contribute the least towards a mortification of sin. Neither is there either virtue or efficacy in the residue of them. But as they are subordinated to other spiritual duties, so Aram gives an honest instance of himself telling us that while he lived in his horrid wilderness in Judea and lodged in his cave, his mind would be in the sports and revels of Rome. Thirdly, the like may be said of the Quakers amongst ourselves. That which first recommended them was an appearance of mortification, which it may be also some of them really intended, though it is evident they never understood the nature of it. For in the height of their outward appearances, as they came short of the sorry weeds, begging habits, macerated countenances, and severe looks of many monks in the Roman church, 
and devices among the Mohammedans, so they were so far from restraining or mortifying their real inclinations as that they seemed to excite and provoke themselves to exceed all others in clamors, railings, evil speakings, reproaching, calumnies, and malicious treating those who descended from them, without the least discovery of a heart filled with kindness and benignity to mankind, or love to any but themselves in which frame and state of things sin is as secure for mortification as in the practice of open lust and debaucheries. But supposing that they made a real industrious attempt for the mortification of sin, what success have they had? What have they attained to? Some of them have very wisely slipped over the whole work and duty of it to a pleasing dream of perfection, and generally finding the fruitlessness of their attempt and that indeed sin will not be mortified by the power of their light within, nor by their resolutions, nor by any of their austere outward appearances, nor peculiar habits or looks, which in this manner are openly pharisaical, they begin to give over their design. For who among all that pretend to any reverence of God do more openly indulge themselves to covetousness, love of the world, emulation, strife, contingents among themselves, severe revenges against others than they do, not to mention the filth and uncleanness they begin mutually to charge one another with. And so will all self-devised ways of mortification end. It is the Spirit of God alone who leads us into the exercise of those duties in which it may be carried on. Secondly, it is required that the duties to be used to this end be rightly performed, in faith, to the glory of God. Without this, a multiplication of duties is an increase of burden and bondage, and that is all. Now, that we can perform no duty in this way or manner without the special assistance of the Holy Spirit has been sufficiently before evidenced. And the duties which are appointed of God in a special manner to this end are prayer, meditation, watchfulness, abstinence, wisdom or circumspection with reference to temptations and their prevalency. Not to go over these duties in particular, nor to show in which their special efficacy to this end and purpose consists, I shall only give some general rules concerning the exercising of our souls in them, and some directions for their right performance. First, all these duties are to be designed and managed with a special respect to this end. It will not suffice that we are exercised in them in general, and with regard only to this general end, we are to apply them to this particular case, designing in and by them the mortification and ruin of sin, especially when by its special actings in us it discovers itself in a peculiar manner to us. No man who wisely considers himself, his state and condition, his occasions and temptations, can be wholly ignorant of his special corruptions and inclinations, in which he is ready for halting as the psalmist speaks. He that is so lives in the dark to himself, and walks at peradventures with God, not knowing how he walks nor where he goes. David probably had respect to this when he said, I have kept the ways of the Lord, and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his judgments were before me, and I did not put away his statutes from me. 
I was also upright before him, and I kept myself from mine iniquity. Psalm 18, verses 21 to 23. He could have done nothing of all this, nor preserved his integrity in walking with God, had he not known and kept a continual watch upon his own iniquity, or that working of sin in him which most peculiarly inclined to dispose him to evil. Upon this discovery we are to apply these duties in a particular manner to the weakening and ruining of the power of sin, as they are all useful and necessary. So the circumstances of our condition will direct us which of them in particular we ought to be most conversant in. Sometimes prayer and meditation claim this place is when our danger arises solely from ourselves and our own perverse inclinations disorderly affections or unruly passions, sometimes watchfulness and abstinence, when sin takes occasion from temptations, concerns, and businesses in the world, sometimes wisdom and circumspection when the avoidance of temptations and opportunities for sin is in a special manner required of us. These duties are to be managed with a peculiar design to oppose, defeat, and destroy the power of sin and to which they have a powerful influence is designed of God to that end. For secondly, all these duties rightly improve work two ways towards the end designed. First, morally, by beseeching God for help and assistance. Secondly, really by an immediate opposition to sin and its power, whence assimilation to holiness arises. These duties work morally and by way of impetration. I shall instance only in one of them, and that is prayer. There are two parts of prayer with respect to sin and its power. First, complaints. Secondly, petitions. First, complaints. So is the title of Psalm 102, A Prayer of the Afflicted, when he is overwhelmed and pours out his complaint before the Lord. So David expresses himself in Psalm 55, verse 2. Attend to me, and hear me. I mourn in my complaint and make a noise. His prayer was a doleful lamentation. In Psalm 142, verse 2, I poured out my complaint before him. I showed before him my trouble. This is the first work of prayer with respect to sin, its power and prevalency. The soul in this pours out its complaints to God and shows before him the trouble it undergoes on account of it. And this it does in the humble acknowledgement of its guilt, crying out of its deceit and violence. For all just and due complaint respects that which is grievous, and which is beyond the power of the complainer to relieve himself against. Of this sort there is nothing to be compared with the power of sin as to believers. This, therefore, is and ought to be the principal manner and subject of their complaints in prayer. Yea, the very nature of the whole case is such as that the apostle could not give an account of it without great complaints. Romans 7 verse 24. This part of prayer, indeed, is with profligate persons derided and scorned, but it is acceptable with God and that in which believers find ease and rest of their souls. For let the world scoff all it pleases. What is more acceptable than God than for his children out of pure love to him and holiness, out of fervent desires to comply with his mind and will, and by it to attain conformity to Jesus Christ, 
to come in prayer with their complaints to him of the distance they are kept from these things by the captivating power of sin, bewailing their frail condition, and humbly acknowledging all the evils they are liable to upon the account of it. But any man have thought it possible had not experience convinced him that anyone should ever read the Bible, or once consider what he is, and with whom he has to do, and be ignorant of this duty, but we have nothing to do with such persons but to leave them to please themselves while they may with these fond and impious imaginations. They will come either in this world, for which we hope and pray for, in their repentance to know their folly, or in another world. I say these complaints of sin poured out before the Lord, these cryings out of deceit and violence are acceptable to God and prevalent with him to give out aid and assistance. He owns believers as his children and has the bowels and compassion of a father towards them. Sin he knows to be their greatest enemy and which fights directly against their souls. Will he then despise their complaints and their bemoaning of themselves before him? Will he not avenge them of that enemy? And that speedily? See Jeremiah 31 verses 18 to 20. Men who think they have no other enemies, none to complain of, but such as oppose them, or extract them, or oppress them in their secular interests, advantages, and concerns, are strangers to these things. Believers look on sin as their greatest adversary, and know that they suffer more from it than from all the world. Suffer them, therefore, to make their complaints of it to him who pities them, and who will relieve them and avenge them. Secondly, prayer is direct petitions to this purpose. It consists of petitions to God for supplies of grace to conflict and conquer sin with. I need not prove this. No man prays as he ought. No man joins in prayer with another who prays as he ought, but these petitions are a part of his prayer. Especially will they be so, and not they so to be, when the mind is peculiarly engaged in the design of destroying sin. And these petitions or requests are, as far as they are gracious and effectual, worked in us by the Holy Ghost, who therein makes intercession for us according to the will of God. And by this does he carry on this work of the mortification of sin, for his work it is. He makes us to put up prevalent requests to God for such continual supplies of grace, in which it may be constantly kept under and at length destroyed. And this is the first way in which this duty has an influence in the mortification, namely, morally, and by way of beseeching God for grace. Secondly, this duty has a real efficiency to the same end. It does itself, when rightly performed and duly attended to, mightily prevail to the weakening and destruction of sin. For in and by fervent prayer, especially when it is designed to this end, the habit, frame, and inclination of the soul to universal holiness with the detestation of all sin are increased, cherished, and strengthened. The soul of a believer is never raised to a higher intention of spirit in the pursuit of love to and delight in holiness, nor is more conformed to it or cast into the mold of it. 
than it is in prayer. And frequently in this duty is a principal means to fix and consolidate the mind and the form and likeness of it. And hence believers oftentimes continue in and come off from prayer above all impressions from sin as to its inclinations and compliances. With such a frame always continue. How happy would we be? But abiding in the duty is the best way of reaching out after it. I say, therefore, that this duty is really efficient of the mortification of sin, because in it, all the graces in which it is opposed and weakened are excited, exercised, and improved to that end. It's also the detestation and abhorrency of sin is increased in us. And where this is not so, there are some secret flaws in the prayers of men, which will be their wisdom to find out and heal. Fourthly, the Holy Spirit carries on this work by applying in a special manner the death of Christ to us for that end. And this is another thing which, because the world does not understand it, it despises it. But yet, in whomsoever the death of Christ is not the death of sin, he shall die in his sins. To evidence this truth, we may observe first, in general, that the death of Christ has a special influence into the mortification of sin, without which it will not be mortified. This is plainly enough testified to in the scriptures. By his cross, that is his death on the cross, we are crucified to the world, Galatians 6:14. Our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed. Romans 6, verse 6. That is, sin is mortified in us by virtue of the death of Christ. Secondly, in the death of Christ, with respect to sin, there may be considered first his oblation of himself, and secondly, the application of it to us. By the first, it is that our sins are expiated as to their guilt, but from the latter it is that they are actually subdued as to their power, for it is by an interest in and a participation of the benefits of its death, which we call the application of it to us. Here on are we said to be buried with him and to rise with him, in which our baptism is a pledge, chapter 6, 3 and 4, the powerful participation of the virtue of the death and life of Christ in a death to sin and newness of life and holy obedience, which your baptism is a pledge of, as it is a token of our initiation and implanting into him. So are we said to be baptized into his death, or into the likeness of it, that is, in his power. Verse 3. Thirdly, the old man is said to be crucified with Christ, or sin to be mortified by the death of Christ, as was in part before observed, on two accounts first of conformity, Christ is ahead, the beginning or idea of the new creation, the firstborn of every creature. Whatever God designs to us in this, he first exemplified in Jesus Christ, and we are predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son, Romans 8 verse 29. Of this the apostle gives us an express instance in the resurrection, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ's, it is coming. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 23, it is so in all things, all that is wrought in us, it is in resemblance and conformity to Christ. Particularly we are by grace planted in the likeness of his death. 
Romans 6, 5, being made conformable to his death. Philippians 3, 10, and so dead with Christ, Colossians 2, 20. Now this conformity is not in our natural death, nor in our being put to death as he was, for it is that which we are made partakers of in this life, and that in a way of grace and mercy. But Christ died for sin, for our sin, which was a meritorious procuring cause of it, and he lived again by the power of God. A likeness and conformity to God will work in all believers. There is by nature a life of sin in them, as has been declared. This life must be destroyed. Sin must die in us, and we, by it, become dead to sin. And as he rose again, so are we to be quickened in and to newness of life. In this death of sin consists that mortification which we treat about, and without which we cannot be conformed to Christ in this death, which we are designed to. In the same spirit which wrought thee things in Christ's will in the pursuit of his design, work that which answers to them in all of his members. Secondly, in respect of accomplishing the end for which it was designed, Virtue goes forth from the death of Christ for the subduing and destruction of sin. It was not designed to be a dead and active passive example, but it is accompanied with a power, conforming and changing us into its own likeness. It is the ordinance of God to that end, which he therefore gives efficacy to. It is by a fellowship or participation in the sufferings that we are made conformable to his death. Philippians 3.10 this is an interest and a benefit of his sufferings. We also are made partakers of it. This makes us conformable to his death, in the death of sin in us. The death of Christ is designed to be the death of sin. Let them who are dead in sin deride it while they please. If Christ had not died, sin had never died in any sinner to eternity. Therefore, that there is a virtue and efficacy in the death of Christ to this purpose cannot be denied without a renunciation of all the benefits of it. On one hand, the scripture tells us that he is our life, our spiritual life, the spring fountain and cause of it. We have nothing, therefore, that belongs to it but what is derived from him. They cast themselves out of the verge of Christianity who suppose that the Lord Christ is no otherwise our life or the law author of life to us, but as he is revealed and taught the way of life to us, he is our life as he is our head. And it would be a sorry head that should only teach the feet to go, and not communicate strength to the whole body so to do. And that we have real influences of life from Christ have sufficiently proved before. To our spiritual life ensues the death of sin. For this, on the other hand, is peculiarly assigned to his death and the testimonies before produced. This, therefore, is by virtue derived from Christ, that is, in a special manner from his death, as the scripture testifies. All the inquiry is, how the death of Christ is applied to us, or, which is the same thing, how we apply ourselves to the death of Christ for this purpose. And I answer, we do it by two ways. One, by faith. The way to derive virtue from Christ is by touching of him. 
So the diseased woman in the gospel touched but the hem of his garment, and virtue went forth from him to stay her bloody issue. Matthew nine twenty and 22. It was not her touching him outwardly, but her faith, which she acted then and by, did derive virtue from him. For so our Savior tells her in his answer, Daughter, be of good comfort. Your faith has made you whole. But to what end was this touching of his garment? It was only a pledge and token of the particular application of the healing power of Christ to her soul, or her faith on him in particular for that end. For at the same time, many thronged upon him in a press, so as his disciples marveled, he should ask who touched his clothes. Mark five thirty and 31. Yet was not any of them advantage but the poor, sick woman. A great emblem it is of common profession on the one hand and special faith. On the other, multitudes press and throng about Christ in a profession of faith and obedience and in the real performance of many duties, but no virtue goes forth from Christ to heal them. But when anyone, though poor, though seemingly at a distance, gets but the least touch of him by special faith, this soul is healed. This is our way with respect to the mortification of sin. The scripture assures us that there is virtue and efficacy in the death of Christ to that end. The means in which we derive this virtue from is, is by touching of him, that is, by acting faith on him in his death, for the death of sin. But how will this effect it? How will sin be mortified by it? I say, how? By what power and virtue were they healed in the wilderness who looked to the brazen serpent? Was it not because that was an ordinance of God which by his almighty power he made effectual to that purpose? The death of Christ being so, as to the crucifying of sin, when it is looked on or applied by faith, shall not divine virtue and power go forth to that end? The scripture and experience of all believers give testimony to the truth and reality of this. Besides, faith itself is acted on the death of Christ as a peculiar efficacy to the subduing of sin. For beholding him by this as in a mirror, we are changed into the same image. Second Corinthians 3.18 And that which we peculiarly behold, we are peculiarly transformed into the likeness of. And, moreover, it is the only means in which we actually derive from Christ the benefits of our union with him. From thence, we all have grace, or there is no such thing in the world, and a communication of it to us is in and by the actual exercise of faith, principally. So it be enacted with respect to his death, we have grace for the killing of sin, and by it become dead with him, crucified with him, buried with him, as in the testimonies before produced. This is that which we call the application of the death of Christ to us, or our application of ourselves to the death of Christ for the mortification of sin. And they by whom this means is despised or neglected, who are ignorant of it, or do blaspheme it, must live under the power of sin, to what invention soever they turn themselves for deliverance. According as we abide and abound in this will be our success. 
those who are careless and remiss in the exercise of faith, by prayer and meditation in the way described, will find that sin will keep its ground and maintain so much power in them as shall issue in their perpetual trouble. And men who are much conversant with the death of Christ, not in notions and lifeless speculations, not in natural or carnal affections, like those which are raised in weak persons by images and crucifixes, but by holy actings of faith with respect to what is declared in the scripture as to its power and end will be implanted into the likeness of it and experience the death of sin in them continually. Secondly, we do it also by love. Christ is crucified as a great object of our love, or so should be, for he is therein to sinners altogether lovely. Hence one of the ancients cried out, My love is crucified, and why do I stay behind in the death of Christ to his love? His grace, his condescension most gloriously shine forth. We may therefore consider three things with respect to this love. First, the object of it. Secondly, the means of the representation of that object to our minds and affections. Thirdly, the effects of it as to the case in hand. First, the object of it is Christ himself and his unsearchable grace, his unspeakable love, his infinite condescension, his patient suffering and victorious power in his death are dying for us. It is not his death, absolutely, but himself, as all these graces conspicuously shine forth in his death, which is intended. Secondly, and there are various ways in which this may be represented to our minds. First, men may do it to themselves by their own imaginations. They may frame and fancy dolorous things to themselves about it, which is a way of persons under deep and devout superstitions. But no love and sincerity will ever be ingenerated towards Christ by this. Secondly, it may be done by others in pathetical and tragical declarations of the outward part of Christ's sufferings. And as some have a great faculty to work upon the natural affections of their auditors and great passions accompanied with tears and vows, may be so excited. But, for the most part, there is no more in this work than what the same persons do find in themselves that may be in the reading or hearing of a feigned story. For there is a sympathy in natural affections with the things that are their proper objects, though represented by false imaginations. Thirdly, it is done in the papacy, and among some others by images, and crucifixes, and dolorous pictures, in which they pay great devotion with an appearance of ardent affections. But none of these is such a due representation of this object as to ingenerate sincere love towards Christ crucified in any soul. Therefore, fourthly, this is done effectually only by the gospel, and in the dispensation of it according to the mind of God, for therein is Jesus Christ evidently crucified before our eyes, Galatians 3.1. And this it does by proposing to our faith the grace, the love, the patience, the condescension, the obedience, and the design of Christ in it. So as Christ died by faith, is a proper object of sincere love.
and being so stated thirdly, the effects of it, as of all true love, are first, adherence, secondly, assimilation, first, adherence, lovingly expressed by this effect, the soul of one did cleave or was knit to another, as out of Jonathan to David in 1 Samuel 18.1. So it produces a firm adherence to Christ crucified that makes the soul to be in some sense always present with Christ on the cross, and hence ensues, secondly, assimilation or conformity. None treat of the nature or effects of love, but they assign this as one of them, that it begets a likeness between the mind loving and the object beloved. And so I am sure it is in this manner, a mind filled with the love of Christ as crucified and represented in a manner and way before described will be changed into his image and likeness by the effectual mortification of sin through a derivation of power and grace from thence for that purpose. And lastly, the Holy Ghost carries on this work by constant discoveries to and pressing on believers on the one hand the true nature and certain end of sin and on the other, the beauty, excellency, usefulness, and necessity of holiness, with the concerns of God, Christ, the gospel, and their own souls. In it, a rational consideration of these things is all the ground and reason of mortification and the judgment of some men. But we have proved that there are other causes of it also. And now I add that if we have no consideration of these things, but what our own reason is of itself able to suggest to us, it will never be prevalent to any sincere or permanent attempt in the mortification of any sin, whatever. Let men make the best of the reason they can in the searching and consideration of the perverse nature and dreadful consequence of sin, of the perfect peace and future blessedness which attends the practice of holiness. They will find an obstinacy and stubbornness in their hearts not conquerable by any such reasonings or considerations. That conviction of sin and righteousness, which is useful and prevalent to that end and purpose, is wrought in us by the Holy Ghost. John 16, verse 8. Although he makes use of our minds, understandings, reasons, consciences, and the best of our consideration in this manner, yet if he give not a peculiar efficacy and power to all, the work will not be effectual. When he is pleased to make use of reason and motives taken from the nature and end of sin and holiness, to the mortification of sin, they shall hold good and bind a soul to this duty against all objections and temptations that would divert it whatever. And thus I have briefly, and I confess weakly and obscurely, delineated the work of the Holy Ghost and the sanctification of them that do believe. Many things might have been more enlarged and particularly inquired into. What have been discoursed I judge sufficient to my present purpose. I doubt not but that what has been argued from plain scripture and experience is sufficient, is to direct us into the practice of true evangelical holiness, so with all sober persons to cast out of all consideration that fulsome product of pride and ignorance, that all gospel holiness consists in the practice of moral virtues. John Owen